Okay, let me pray, and then we'll continue in our, in our sermon for today. Pray with me. Father, this one is a, I feel like we say this every Sunday, this one's a particularly complicated one. And not only is it complicated, it is a, a sensitive one as it talks about uh, an issue in today's cultural climate that has often been the cause for much dissension and hurt and pain. And I pray, Father, as we talk about uh, this passage, as we open up your word, that you would um, illuminate our hearts and our minds, help us stick with what it is you're trying to tell us. And we beg you, Father, that you would make Christ clear and that you would do a work in the hearts of your people through the Spirit that my words could never sufficiently do, ever. Uh, may the one doing the teaching here be your Spirit. May the source of wisdom come from your Word, and may the glory uh, uh, that it goes to be to your name. Uh, that you build your church up. Uh, allow us to display you better in this world that you've placed us in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We are continuing in our sermon series, Friends, the book of Genesis, and we're currently in the middle of chapter 2, where many of you probably know the story of when Adam meets Eve. And if you were to ask me, you know, Tez, what is this passage about? It's like, you name it. <laughs> you know, is it about marriage? Yes. Is it about gender dynamics? Yes. Is it about living in community? Yes. It's all those things. But if we had to choose kind of one overarching theme upon which all of these other themes can kind of fit under, I think, just like Genesis chapter 1, the main theme here is still the theme of God's image. God's image. Why do I say that? Because there's an explicit connection made here with Genesis chapter 1. Where? Well, if you remember Genesis chapter 1, every time after God makes something, there's this phrase that he would always say. What was it? It is good, right? He created light. He said it's good. He separated the land from the sea, said it was good. He created the plants and the animals, said it was good. Now, the question is, why are all these things good? Because light's just light, right? There, there's no moral capacity to light, but it's good because it reflects the good image of the Creator. That's why it's good. There's something about God's image that's being displayed by creation. But here, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the very first uh, verse in this uh, pericope, reflected, uh, or, or God here says a word that seems like it doesn't belong in paradise. You'll see that God all of a sudden, for the first time ever, says, it is not good. It's not good. So, you know, tension is built, and the reader is meant to ask, well, what's not good? Apparently, there's something missing. Not something bad or sinful. Remember, sin hasn't entered the world yet. That happens in Genesis chapter 3. So, creation's still good. It was just incomplete. There is something that the world lacked that caused it to be an inadequate mirror to the fullness of God's good image. What was that thing? What did the world lack? It lacked Eve. It lacked woman. Not trying to be smart there, that's literally Genesis 2. You guys somehow complete God's image here on earth. 
And the question is, how? How does the inclusion of woman into the world make it a complete mirror for God's image? Well, let's, let's get into it. And by the way, if you're here today, whether you're married or single, this is so important for all of us. Because what God's doing here is He's giving us a blueprint for human relationships, meaning that understanding this passage well is unbelievably foundational for you to be able to make sense of both marriage and singleness well which I know for a fact is really important for you guys. You know how I know that? Because that's what 90% of my counseling is all about. So this is absolutely important for us all. So, you know, let's give it a fair hearing. Here's God's word from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thus says the Lord. Three things, friends, that I want to point out about God's image in the state of the world at the time here in Genesis chapter 2. First, the missing piece. Second, the dynamic answer. And third, the final message. All right? The missing piece, the dynamic answer, and the final message. Let's go to the first point. The missing piece. There are tons of biblical answers that's been given out there about how Eve's existence in the world could make the world better mirror God's, God's image. First, and perhaps the most popular answer that I'm sure you guys have, have heard of is through childbearing. Right? That's one of the proposed answers. Um, through childbearing, Adam and Eve would be able to produce more human beings, therefore more images of God to then uh, fill the earth with. That's one proposed solution. Um, the other explanation, another popular one, is by Eve can help uh, the world mirror God better by helping Adam in his work, as we talked about earlier in our, in our um, liturgy, uh, to be Adam's helper. Now remember, We saw in Genesis that God placed Adam in this garden to kind of work it and keep it so that the earth that was at the time still kind of bare looking could be as beautiful as this garden is. And the garden, the beauty of the garden will kind of spread and cover the whole earth so that the whole earth would then uh, image or mirror God and God's beauty. And Eve here is called to help Adam in that work. That's why in verse 18 she's called a helper, which, by the way, as we've emphasized earlier, is not a demeaning term. You know who else is called an Ezer a lot in the Bible? We saw it earlier. God is. If this phrase is used to refer to God, how could it be demeaning? Anytime Israel would be losing a war, they would call upon the Lord and say, my help, my Ezer, comes from the Lord. And then God would, you know, smite the enemy. It's a powerful term. It's the same exact word used to describe Eve. Eve wasn't Adam's nanny. She was his military backup to help Adam beautify the earth. Childbearing, uh, ezering, helping Adam in his work, 
those are all biblical answers as to how Eve will help Adam beautify the world, make the world a better image, a mirror for God's image. But those two things aren't actually the main thrust or the main thing that we see here in our passage today as to how Eve can actually help Adam mirror God better. The main way Eve in our passage is described to be able to help Adam mirror God better is actually through something much more simple, but yet I want to propose much more profound. Eve helps Adam mirror God better simply here in this passage through her companionship. That's it. Companionship in itself mirrors God. Where do we see this theme of companionship? Look at verse 18. What was it that God specifically described as not good in verse 18? It was Adam's loneliness. It is not good that man should be alone. Then you see this theme again by the way Eve's creation was kind of dragged out here in this passage. Remember Genesis 1, God would say, you know, let there be light, light would appear. Let there be animals, animals would appear. Whatever he said would immediately appear. But here in verse 18, God said, I'll make a helper fit for Adam. What happens? Eve doesn't just suddenly appear like everything else in creation. God drags it out. In verse 19, instead of making Eve, God brings all the animals to Adam and says, name them, all of them. It's like, really? Okay. Name them all. And then verse 20, what's happening? No Eve yet. Adam's still naming the animals. And then after Adam's done naming all the animals, it's not like God made Eve right away. No, no. He took the time to repeat the point again. But for Adam, there was still no helper fit for him. And at this point, we're going, oh my goodness, give the man a wife. <laughs> Stop. How long are you going to drag this out? It's, you know, let's get going. But there's a point to the dragging out. It's to emphasize the theme of loneliness, of lack of companionship. It's not good. God's image here is not yet fully mirrored when man had no companion. But why? Why is God's image not mirrored fully in man's loneliness? Well, because God, you can say, is a communal being. Remember, our God is one God, but three persons. We read in our statement of faith earlier, existing in eternal and perfect communion. God's nature is diversity in unity. Three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one essence, right? That's the God that Adam, that's the God that you and I are imaged after. And if we're not living in community, there can be no diverse unity. And if there's no diverse unity, then there's a lack of the imago Dei. There's a lack of God's image here on earth. We can't do it alone. Eve helps Adam mirror God simply through her companionship. And look, this isn't just some theological, philosophical talk. This is really, really practical. You know what this worldview does? This makes your relationships both much more beautiful and also much more sturdy. Let me, let me explain how. First, beautiful. How do you know that something is beautiful to you? You've probably heard this one before. Well, you know something is beautiful to you when that thing stops becoming a stepping stone 
and it becomes the end goal in itself. That's when it's beautiful. Think about music. Why do you pay monthly for your Spotify account? Why do you pay so much money to go to concerts? Does it put food on the table? Does it pay your light bills? Does it pay your rent? Is there any pragmatic use to listening to music? No. You simply do it because of music. <laughs> it's the end goal. It's beautiful in itself. Why do you watch movies? You know, does it increase your salary? No. The movie, the story, is the end goal in itself. Something's beautiful to you when it stops becoming a stepping stone. What's the point of human relationships here? God's saying in Genesis chapter 2. It's not a stepping stone, you know. So we can just glorify God by having a lot of kids and partnering up to, to serve Him. I mean, there's that, you know. Sure, that's good and well. But biblically speaking, relationships don't glorify God primarily in a utilitarian kind of way. Relationships glorify God in itself. The relationship itself is the end goal. The relationship itself is what beautifully mirrors the triune image of God. And if you view relationships this way, it'll also make it much more sturdy. How so? Well, let me tell you. In the past six years of pastoring, I've done tons of premarital counseling, marital counseling, reconciliation efforts between couples, friends, church members, you know, and when you do something long enough, you start to go a little crazy and you see a pattern. <laughs> I'm starting to see a pattern. And if you were to ask me, Tez, you know, boil it down for us, narrow it down for us, what is the one kind of thin red line? What is the one thing that you would say underlies the common thread that, that causes a lot of relational issues, whether romantic or uh, not romantic? And I would say it's this. Issues happen when two people are much more interested in functionality than they are in companionship. Relationships issues happen when two people are much more interested in functionality than they are in companionship. And you'd be surprised how often this is true for tons of marriages. That's why our relationships are so fragile and people get hurt and we bicker. I'm not saying don't get tasks done. Get them done. I'm just saying don't miss the force with the trees. Why were other people created? Genesis 2 here says, not just for pragmatic function, but for deep soul companionship, which in itself mirrors the divine. It's valuable in itself. That's, that's why Eve was created. But for Adam here, he didn't have Eve yet. There, there's this missing piece. There's no other human being at the time to mirror the beautiful, diverse unity of the triune God with. So what's the solution? What did God do? Let's go to our second point, the dynamic answer. So he's named all the animals, right? Verse 19, verse 20, and finally, in verse 21, God gave Adam a companion, but in order for this companion to really fulfill the agenda of helping God mirror God's, uh, helping Adam mirror God's triune image of diverse unity, what needs to happen is that this person can't just be a copy-paste version of Adam. It can't be. 
Why not? Because see, that wouldn't produce diverse unity. That would produce uniformity. But the nature of, God, of the God that Adam's trying to image here isn't marked by uniformity. It's marked by diverse unity. So what Adam needed wasn't a copy-paste version of himself. What Adam needed was someone who had both unity with him, equality with him, likeness to him, but yet at the same time, it was also different from him. That's the way diverse unity can be fulfilled. And interestingly enough, that's exactly what the word fit or sometimes translated as um, uh, suitable uh, here means. God said it twice in verse 18 and, and 20. He said he'd make a helper fit or suitable for Adam. But the actual Hebrew word that's translated to fit here in, in the English, in the Hebrew it's kenegdo, it actually literally means like opposite. That's what fit here means. God gave Adam a helper that is like opposite to him diverse unity. And this passage expounds on these two motifs, like opposite, so beautifully. First, let's talk about how Eve here is portrayed as, as equal to Adam or, or like Adam. You see that in the way Eve was created. There's this sense of elevation about her. Look at how she was made. Contrast us with, with the, the way animals are made, for example. Now, Remember, every time God makes something or someone in, in the book of Genesis, it's not meant to be a full-on scientific report, okay? That would be too long of a book. Uh, of course, there's much more biological complexity that happened in Eve's creation. But what, what God's trying to express here through this literature process is to show us how elegant of a creature Eve is. Look how elegant the surgery procedure went here in verse 21. What, what did God do to Adam? He first put him in this deep beauty sleep, and while he slept, God came and painlessly took one of his ribs out and then gently closed the wound back up as if nothing happened. So serene, so elegant. Why? To emphasize that the subject that would emerge from all of this is also elegant in stature. And, and the word made in verse 22, when God made Eve, you know that word is only found one other, other time in the Bible. In Amos chapter 9, verse 6, the Hebrew word that's translated to, to made is only found one other time. In Amos 6, when it describes God making his upper chambers in the heavens, and then that word's not used again. She's elegant. She was made with the same care heaven was built out of, poetically speaking. And she was made from Adam's rib. Why? As a commentator famously once said, she was made not from his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm, to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. She's elegant. She's elevated. She's beloved. Then finally, Adam sees her for the first time in verse 22, and art is created. <laughs> the first poem mankind ever wrote, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and it's beautiful, but pay attention to the content of what Adam said. It's all about equality. Bone of my bones. The animals are not bone of my bones. This one is flesh of my flesh, equal in dignity, in worth, in value, in origin or ontology, same substance, 
Finally, another human being, Adam said, a companion who knows what it's like to be human. Like me, equal to me. See, likeness, first motif. But the second motif, the second part of the word fit here, like opposite, remember, this is also um, uh, expounded here in, in this passage. Now, this is a much more dangerous route for me to tread in today's cultural climate, but it's important to talk about because it is, it is in this passage. Now, I'm just going to talk about how Eve is different from Adam here, okay, because there's a tons of rabbit trails I don't want to get into. But one difference we see in the Bible, not necessarily in this passage per se, but in, in the Bible together, um, we see the difference in, in trait, masculinity and femininity. Why? Because these two categories of masculinity and femininity is often how God is described in the Bible as well. Now, to be absolutely clear and orthodox, we know that God has no gender, right? We read it earlier in our statement of faith. He has no body parts. He, he, he has no gender. He's, he's a spirit, okay? But in order to express who God is to us, the Bible does sometimes use masculine and feminine uh, imagery. Most of the time, God is described as in the masculine pronoun, called a father, he, right? But there are places in Deuteronomy 32, for example, where God's described as a woman giving birth to Israel, for example. And then again, um, as a mother eagle protecting her young. So, so apparently there's something about both masculinity and femininity that, that mirrors God. You know, I've been married uh, to Tatiana, my wife, who's Puerto Rican, for 13 years now. And what I've noticed happened to me is that after all these years is that we started to become kind of enmeshed. And I no longer uh, just view life as an Indonesian. I now view life as an Indo-Rican. How would they look at life? How would they view this situation? It's a, just, it's a part of the enmeshment. You can't avoid it. And not only do I start to view life more like how a Puerto Rican who grew up in Memphis would, would view life, um, but I also start to view life a little bit more like how a woman would view life. If I wasn't married to Tati, I would have no idea how to counsel women. <laughs> I'd be very behind in the journey of empathy I would have much less sensitivity to different nuances in relationships. But see, all of those traits that I adopted from her because of our, our enmeshing, right, it didn't make me less masculine. It actually made my masculinity mirror God better. When masculinity and femininity complement each other, the image of God becomes a little more HD. But that's not the thrust or main point of uh, Eve's oppositeness in, in this passage. The one we see in this passage is perhaps an even more dangerous path for me to tread. But I got to because it's explicit in this passage. The main difference we see uh, between Adam and Eve here is actually not in temperament, but in role. It's in roles. Now, before I dodge those rocks, okay, remember, Eve here was made like Adam, equal to Adam, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But we can't ignore the second part of the poem where Adam named Eve. 
Adam said, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And back then, when someone names someone else, there's a particular relationship dynamic that's mutually understood. Namely, that the one who's doing the naming, I'm finding myself getting more scared as I go on in the sentence. (laughs) Namely, the one doing the naming is the one that has leadership over the one being named. That's why God would change people's names in the Bible. You're no longer called called Abram, you're called Abraham, right? You're mine. You're no longer called Saul, you're Paul, what have you. Adam and Eve here are different in this passage in the roles that they have in this relationship, namely that Adam is called to lead. Now, does that bring up the fear of toxic masculinity? Yes, of course it does, and it can, and understandably so. Why? Because a lot of men have abused passages like this in the Bible for their own power play, right? We have said that difference in roles equals difference in value, they claim. But let's connect this back to the main point of the passage, which is God's image. Let's connect this back to the Trinity. Does difference in role equal difference in value in the Trinity? There's a difference in role in the Trinity? Yes, there is. Think about it. Does the Son ever send the Father? No. The Father sends the Son. Does the Holy Spirit ever send the Son? No. The Son always sends the Holy Spirit. Did the Father die on the cross? No. The Son did. The Father Uh, orchestrated salvation, the Son accomplished the work of salvation on the cross, and and the Holy Spirit made it effectual as He regenerates our hearts. Each person in the Trinity have different roles in the drama of redemption, okay? Um, I'm not saying there's three different goals or three different wills or agendas. That's not not what I'm saying, but there is a difference, the, the Bible does say. But does that therefore mean that the Son is less honorable than the Father? Or does that mean that the Holy Spirit has less dignity than the Son, although there are differences in roles? Not at all. They're all one, in essence, equal in substance, in value, in dignity, in honor. Role difference in the Trinity has never equaled value difference, nor should it be between Adam and Eve, between male and female. The only reason why role difference is is equaled or associated with value difference today is because of sin. Ever since we sinned, this fragile dynamic of this relationship is cracked. Role difference now is taken as value difference. So now we're all scared and confused. Men want to lead, but we don't want to be seen as sojago and superior. And we're also scared of the potential that we know we have to misuse this leadership, which has happened. So, so what do we do? Well, we swing the pendulum the other side, and we just don't lead. But that presents problems of its own, too. Women want to be able to trust in their man, but she feels the same fear that we do. Will my trust be abused? Can I rest upon his shoulders? I don't know. Look at him. He doesn't even know. He's a sinner. 
So self-protection kicks in. Pendulums are swinging. And now this power play has caused so much pain and so much hurt for so long, we think to ourselves, you know what? Let's just delete the difference altogether. Let's just delete it. It's, It's too risky. It's too scary. It's too delicate. It's much safer to just focus on the similar part and get rid of the difference part. It's, it's much safer to focus on the like and ignore the opposite. But what this passage is saying is that if we do that, we will lose the beautiful dynamic of God's image that can only be seen when both genders complement one another in diverse unity. So, we're stuck. We're stuck between a rock and a hard place. On one side, Do we acknowledge the difference that's caused so much hurt, that's been abused so often? Or do we ignore the difference and water down God's image on earth? What do we do? Well, let's go to our last point. We got to see the final message that God's trying to tell us here through the difference of roles of male and female. The final message. So funny, I preach the gospel all the time. I don't feel like I'll be crucified for it, but this one, for some reason, I feel like I do. I will. Here it is. The final message. What's God's final message here for us, for this difference of male and female dynamic? Is it global male dominance? No, of course it's not. First of all, this dynamic is limited in scope. It's very limited in scope. Look at verse 24. Who is this dynamic meant for? It says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. This role dynamic is limited specifically to a husband and a wife. That's it. So men, you can't just go around asserting your authority over every woman you see. As some cultures unfortunately do. Recently, we've seen in a country that has uh, made it illegal for women to get education. That's awful. That is not at all what the Bible is saying here. The Bible is saying, ain't no ring, ain't no thing. You can't do it. It's limited in scope, okay? Oh, so then what? Husbands can just treat their wives however they want? No, of course not. Don't you dare. What we see here, verses 24-25, is that man's leadership is not only limited, very limited in scope, but it's also sacrificial in nature. Where do we see that? Verse 24. Verse 24 says that the husband is to leave his parents and hold fast to his wife. Leave his parents and hold fast to his wife. But, but here's the thing. Back then in ancient Israel, after the wedding, men normally wouldn't leave their parents geographically and then settle somewhere else with, with their wife. Culturally, it's almost always the woman who would leave her parents' place and then settle nearby her husband's parents' place. So, give it a think. What does leaving here mean for the husband if not departure in geography? What does leaving here mean for the husband if not departure in geography? Well, it's a departure in allegiance. It's a departure in allegiance. Leave your parents. Hold fast to your wife. Men, when you say, I do, As much as you're still called to love and honor your parents, it's part of the Ten Commandments, as much as you're called to love and care for the people around you in your life as well, you 
have a new primary allegiance. And she's your wife. She's the one you give everything for. She's the one you sacrifice everything for. It goes so deep. It's as if you're one flesh, one person, verse 24 here continues to say. It's so deep, Ephesians 5 says, that even if this allegiance causes, causes you to sacrifice your own life, you stick with it. You stick with it at whatever cost. Husbands, your leadership over your wife is not a call to overpower them. It's a call to use your power for them. Even if it's unbelievably costly to you, this role difference is limited in scope. It's sacrificial in nature. That's how marriage is meant to mirror God, His image. Marriage gives us an opportunity to display what power is meant to be used for, not selfish gain, but sacrificial love for the, for the sake of the other. There's a power play in every marriage. There is. It's not my notes, but it came to mind. Whenever I make a mistake, who has more power at that particular season of my marriage with Tati? Tati does. When she makes a mistake, who has the power? She does. <laughs> I do, right? Hopefully. Um, what this, and what this passage is saying, who has power right now? Okay, the, season of, the unique season of life you're in, who has power? Lay it down. Lay it down. Don't use it for your own gain. Lay it down for their sake. That's what it's all about. That's what marriage is meant to mirror, how God uses power for, for good, for love, sacrificially. But oh, how we've botched it. <laughs> we've botched this one bad, haven't we? But the good news is, the good news is, God didn't leave this to us. Oh, no. Marriage is way too important a mirror of God to leave to the likes of us. God redeemed the meaning of marriage himself. Where? You know, isn't it interesting that the Bible in Genesis chapter 2 starts with a marriage, with a wedding, but then in Revelations 19, if you fast forward, it also ends with the wedding. Whose wedding? Jesus's. Remember what it says. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb. Now, why was Jesus described as a lamb in his own wedding? Because the role of a lamb back then was sacrificial in nature. Lambs were sacrificed to pay for the sins of the people. Jesus laid his power down and sacrificed himself for who? For you. Who are you, Christian? Who does the Bible describe you to be? The bride of Christ. He laid it down on the cross with his hands stretched wide. Jesus reminds us all of what marriage is meant to look like what the final message, marriage, is meant to resound, and who the God of marriage is, who this God that marriage is meant to display, a God 
who laid down his power for the sake of his beloved. Do you see him now? Do you see who he is? Martin Luther describes this way better than I ever could. Here's what he said. Now, when two people are married, it's followed that all they have become theirs in common, good things as well as evil things, so that whatsoever Christ possesses now belongs to you, and whatever belongs to you, Christ claims as his. And oh, if we compare these possessions, we shall see how infinite is our gain, for Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation, and we are full of sin, death, and condemnation. But let faith step in, and then sin death, and hell belong to Christ, and grace, life, and salvation come to us. For if he, a husband, he must needs take to himself that which is his wife's, and at the same time impart to his wife that which is his. And therefore we, the believing, by the wedding ring of faith, become free from all sin, fearless in death, safe from hell and endowed with the eternal life and righteousness of our husband, Jesus Christ. Oh, how we could ever value highly enough these royal nuptials. Who can comprehend the riches of his glorious grace? Do you not see the importance of faith, which is a wedding ring? And that alone can fulfill the law and justify without works. This dynamic of diverse unity that marriage is meant to display is seen in how Christ treated his bride, us. Now, before I close, allow me to just take a few minutes to address my single brothers and sisters here today. You're probably sitting here saying, that is beautiful, Tez, but what about me? Well, I want you to know that the God mirroring companionship that Genesis 2 here talks about is primarily about marriage, but it's not exclusively about marriage. See, in in the Bible, marriage is a good thing, but it's never described as an ultimate thing. Did you know that Christianity is the only major world religion that was found by a single person? Jesus was single. Paul, perhaps the second greatest hero of the faith, aside from Jesus, he was single What did he say, remember? Um, Look, if you get married, that's great. But also, if you stay single like me, that's great too. That's what he said. You don't have to be worried with civilian affairs, (laughs) he said. You got time. Oh, you single people, do you know, do you know what Tati and I would give just to say the words, I'm bored? (laughs) We would give anything. You have time to serve the Lord with. Having a spouse is great, but after the fall, it's really hard now. Don't you have married couples? Don't you have parents? (laughs) It's hard. It's a good thing, but it can't complete you. Only Jesus can. Only your true husband can. No earthly wedding can complete you. Only the divine one can. And that doesn't mean you're never lonely. Oh, of course there's that. But that's where the church steps in. CCC, who did God task with the responsibility of being the family of Christ on earth? 
the churches. Our brothers and single and sisters who are called to singleness, whether short-term or long-term, they don't also have to be called to loneliness. They don't. They can still mirror God's communal triune image. How? With the help of our companionship. Let's be a church that does that in all facets of relational complexity so that the world would see who God is, not just by how the married couple love one another, but by how every single person in this church sacrificially love and lay down their power for the sake of the other. Will we do that? I hope we will. Let's pray. Father, what a complicated passage to preach. What a scary passage to bring out to the open. But I pray that you would help us see that the fear and the hurt that has been caused by the dynamic of this relationship, the battle of the sexes, is not originally what it's meant to be. It wasn't the original blueprint. Sin caused that. We did that our selfish desire to use everything, even your word to gain power for ourselves. But in your word, this whole thing was meant to be laying down power, not about gaining power. And I pray, Father, that we, your bride, the church, would behold the glory of the cross and see how our husband laid down his power for us so that we now can have eternal life, can be his forever. And may that infiltrate and infect the way we use our power, whether it be to our spouse, whether it be to anyone else that we have power over in this earth. Help us use every ounce for their sake and not for our own selfish gain. For that is the example and the mirror of who you are that the cross portrays. In Jesus' name we pray.